Hey, Fiber Nation listeners. It's almost a year ago to the day that I recorded my favorite episode of Fiber Nation, The Donner Party and the Doll. And in large part, that's because this episode is where I figured out what I wanted this podcast to be. Not just the stories of individuals, but stories about history and culture. In the Donner Party episode, a tiny doll became something much bigger than a child's toy. She was a window into an era, but also a lens focused on a particular family. The doll tells us about their history, their social status, even their relationship with one another. Prior to researching this episode, I knew almost nothing about the Donner Party. I thought it was just a wagon train that got trapped in the mountains with an especially lurid ending. I had no idea that the party was trapped for five months, or that a whole lot of bad things kept happening over and over and over. It was like watching a horror movie where you're yelling, don't go down into the basement, as the main character does just that. And the story made me angry. The Donner Party is a story about making bad decisions and ignoring good advice. It's about a group of people who, faced with adversity, fractured and turned on one another, rather than helping each other. But it's also a story about how to keep going, in the worst circumstances imaginable. It's about holding on to whatever it is that gets you through something awful. We're hard at work on another season of Fiber Nation, and we've got stories about cancel culture in the 1850s, stories about the fall and rise of a forbidden fiber, even stories about secret codes hiding in plain sight. In the meantime, if you haven't already listened to it, or even if you have, I hope you enjoy this episode. It's 1846. An eight-year-old girl named Patty Reed is headed west on the Oregon Trail, along with her family. In their wagons is everything they thought they would need on their long journey. Clothing and bedding, ample food supplies and housewares, rifles, a spinning wheel, and butter churn. And among the few toys that Patty had been allowed to bring was a tiny wooden doll. This doll, and we'll call her Dolly since that's the only name she had, is small. She's maybe four inches in height and has jointed limbs and a painted face and hair. Her clothing is hand-sewn from scraps of fabric. Probably meant for a doll's house, there's nothing particularly remarkable about her, except for one thing. The wagon train that Dolly and Patty Reed were traveling in became known as the Donner Party. listening to Fiber Nation, a knitting podcast that goes beyond knitting. I'm your host, Alison Korleski. Fiber Nation is sponsored by Interweave. Since 1975, Interweave has brought you informative, inspirational, and entertaining content for yarn lovers of every stripe. From magazines and pattern downloads to videos and podcasts, find out what we're up to today at interweave.com. If you don't already know, the Donner Party is one of the most infamous stories from the American West. In the spring of 1846, a group of 500 wagons set out from Independence, Missouri. They carried settlers bound for the Oregon Territories and California. And among those 500 wagons were nine that belonged to the Donner and the Reed families. Over the next 12 months or so, the two families would encounter one disaster after another, culminating with their being trapped for months in the Sierra Nevada mountains by heavy snow. Today, that spot is known as the Donner Pass. 
And here comes the part that most of you have probably heard. With almost no supplies and weakened by starvation, illness, and exhaustion, members of the party resorted to cannibalism. After their ordeal, among the few survivors was that little doll. What I want to do in this episode is explore the story of eight-year-old Patty and her family through her doll. Because during that 12-month journey, Patty would lose her grandmother, see her father banished, and eventually be abandoned by her own mother. And through all of this, she managed to hold on to Dolly, even when she'd lost absolutely everything else. Can you hear me? I can totally hear you. However you are talking now, freeze. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I've got to stay still. Okay. That's the voice of Penelope Hemingway. Penelope, or Pen, as she prefers to be called, is a textile historian. She lives in Yorkshire, England, and as you'll hear in places, the audio on our Skype call wasn't all that great. I contacted Penn after reading an article she wrote about Dolly in the fall issue of Peacework magazine, and we ended up talking a lot about a whole lot of things. You'll hear from her on an upcoming episode, but I want to get back to the doll. Ever since reading Penn's article, I'd kind of wrestled with Dolly. Why did the story of Patty Reed's doll hit me so hard? Why would anyone reading about the Donner Party, why would they care about a doll that belonged to a little girl? Well, as when we were saying before, well, what is the relevance of something so sort of minor from an instant so huge? But actually, to her, this was the thing um, that, that, she, that, that probably kept her sane and kept her going right through it. In the context of something like the Donner Party, it seems very petty and minor. But in the broader context of thinking about costume, clothing, textiles, it's absolutely fascinating because any any doll is a survivor, not just Dolly. Penn is speaking as a historian here how old dolls in general can give clues to a shared past. But Dolly, and in particular what she wore, is a direct window into Patty and the Reed family. So let's look at that family for a minute. Patty's parents were James and Martha Reed. There was also her 13-year-old stepsister, Virginia, her ailing grandmother, Sarah, and two young brothers, ages five and three. And I want to make a side note here, because of the 30 or so members that made up the Donna Reed party, 10 of them were children ages 10 and younger. That larger train, almost half of the people were children. Researching this story, that factoid really got to me. Because these weren't cardboard figures out of a history book or a Western. They were real families with a lot of very young children and babies. We know from various sources that the Reed family was pretty well off. They had two wagons just for food supplies. The family wagon was massive and it had been built for comfort. People called it the palace car. It had comfortable wide leather seats and a built-in stove. Berths for beds made it a full two stories high, and that wagon took eight oxen to pull. The Reed family also brought along 70 cattle and a bevy of servants. There were three men just to drive the oxen teams, along with a handyman and a cook. Patty's sister Virginia had her own pony, which she loved to canter around the wagons as they trudged westward. That palace car was lavish, at least in part, because Patty's grandmother Sarah was coming with them. She was 70 years old and suffering from tuberculosis, and Sarah wasn't expected to survive the full trip. But as long as she was with them, her family wanted her to be as comfortable as possible. 
Patty's sister described the old woman being carried to the wagon and placed on a feather bed, being propped up with pillows. It was either at the start of the trip or shortly after that Sarah gave the doll, one that had been hers as a child, to her granddaughter, Patty. So now let's take a closer look at this doll. Dolly reflects the reed's prosperity, though you need to look closely. At first glance, dollies like thousands of wooden dolls at the time, made in Europe and imported in bulk. They were sold with no clothing on, these dolls in Europe. They come from probably Austria, and they're sold all over the world, all over America, all over Europe, in their thousands and thousands. The Austrians had um, warehouses which were two stories high, full of nothing but dolls. And sometimes things like the colour of the feet are a clue to the doll's size. Now, Dolly's four inches or less, so she's a doll's house doll. So she's never going to be made in massive, wonderful detail. As you can see, she doesn't have hands and stuff like that. But she's been dressed by the child, which is really, really typical of a wooden doll of this period. What sets Dolly apart is her clothing, or at least the cloth. You can actually see Dolly today at the Sutter's Fort Museum in Sacramento, California, in a glass display box. I contacted Nancy Jenner, the curator there, and she was able to give me some more details about Dolly. On the trek west, Patty actually wrote a story about her doll. It survives in the museum, and she described dressing her, quote, with a piece of Swiss, a wee bit of red tape, and with a needle and black thread. Style-wise, Dolly's dress is pretty crude, about what you'd expect an eight-year-old to sew. But the bit of Swiss that Patty refers to was an important and rather expensive fine cotton fabric, kind of a gauze. Her sash, the wee bit of red tape, was a heavy silk ribbon. Most families at that time, even well-off ones like the Reeds, kept piles of leftover fabric for reuse in what was usually referred to as a scrap box. That box was the source of Dolly's clothes. But we do have sources and descriptions of doll's clothing being made from scrap boxes. So we do have other references to children going in the scrap boxes to make the dolly's clothing. So so these are scraps of fabrics that have been used on, on human-sized clothing. Based on dolly's dress, the Reeds family scrap box was pretty upscale. And before it was scraps, those high-quality fabrics would have clothed the Reed family members, including Patty's grandmother, Sarah. Now, remember that Sarah was 70 years old when the wagon set out, and she had advanced tuberculosis. No one, including Sarah herself, expected her to make the long journey, and she died not long after giving Patty her doll. The Reed family buried her by the side of the trail in the Kansas Territory before they continued to head west. The first person to die in the whole of what we now call the Donner Party is Sarah Key's grandma, and they leave her way, I can't remember where, but way back on the trail. She's the first person to die. And they feel like they're never going to see her again. They're never going to even get back to this place where she's buried. And so I think that doll, even if it wasn't Patty's favourite when she set out, that, that really means something to her because, because her sister Virginia says that Sarah gave it to her. So I think that doll is a piece of grandma, and that's how she's keeping grandma alive. And it's Dolly's clothes that suggest a second and maybe more direct connection to her grandmother. To understand, we need to first wade through a fair amount of red tape. And I mean red tape, literally. According to Nancy Jenner, the museum's curator, Dolly's silk sash was pretty much worn to bits, what you see today as a museum reconstruction. 
and this is speculation, and we'll get to why in a bit. But it's quite possible that the ribbon, or silk tape as it was called at the time, it's quite possible that the ribbon that originally made the sash was from something her grandmother had not only worn, but had possibly woven herself. And here we come to one of those weird textile factoids that I just love to stumble across. Many, if not most households in America at that time, wove fabric tapes, again, heavy ribbons, using these little box looms to do so. And yes, it sounds strange, but fabric tape was actually an important household staple. It was used for ties, straps, belts, dress trim, and the like. That infamous red tape we hear about? Turns out it was a real thing. Cloth tape dyed reddish pink with cochineal. It was wrapped around important business and legal documents and held closed with official seals. So when you hear about someone cutting through bureaucratic red tape, now you know. When it comes to textile history, it turns out that Penn is a tape enthusiast. This is one of my favourite subjects because I actually do weave on, on this sort of loom all the time. Um, it's a little tape loom. So people wanted to weave tapes for clothing fastenings. Um, it's very useful in the days before Velcro and zippers. So they'd weave little tapes. It's a little box and it's maybe a foot long and maybe eight inches wide. And it sits on your table and you sit and weave. But given that grandma, who gifts the doll, is we know from West Virginia, and that is an area where tape looms were extremely prevalent, um, I think it's a good bet that that could be uh, something woven possibly by Sarah herself and maybe used years later. Now, Sarah grew up back east with plenty of shops full of British imports. Why would she weave something as mundane as cloth tape? But Sarah also grew up during the American Revolution, when making things could have been as much a political statement as an economic necessity. In the late 18th century, you have that slight interruption, the war between uh, us and you, which which means that it becomes very political um, for Americans to to make their own clothing. It's very important. It's a very powerful statement of of not being dependent anymore on on this old um, colonial power. And while eight-year-old Patty probably didn't care about the politics behind weaving tape, for a little girl bumping along in a covered wagon over the prairie, missing her grandmother, the doll sash was another part of grandma to hold on to. I think as, you know, a child myself who was bereaved as a child, and it, I can really relate to it, you, you have these tiny little bits of flotsam and jetsam from your time in the life before, before you lost that parent or grandparent or whatever, and that's what you cling on to. Patty lost her grandmother early in the trek, but she was to lose so much more as the journey west continued. You'll hear more about this journey after our break. Whether or not you're stuck in a mountain pass, sweater weather is definitely approaching. Make every sweater you knit the perfect sweater with Kate Atherley's online workshop, Find Your Fit. Understanding and Altering Knitting Patterns. In this interactive video course, you'll get the do's and don'ts for knitting your best-fitting sweater. I love how Kate explains what a pattern is really telling you, from explaining what the heck ease actually means to deconstructing pattern photos. She'll also give great advice on how to choose a pattern that addresses your particular needs. She'll show how to make alterations for a better fit and to complement your personal style. And, moment of tough love here, she'll also tell you when it's best to find a different pattern, period. Go to interweave.com and enter Fiber Nation 20. 
for 20% off this workshop and get started today. It's mid-July now, and the wagons have traveled roughly a thousand miles to Fort Bridger in western Wyoming. It was around this time that Tamsin Donner wrote in a letter home that the journey had actually been far easier than expected. That was to change. I think I've mentioned Dolly's size several times now. She's small, four, four and a half inches, maybe the size of a large clothespin. And considering what we know about the Reed family and the rather lavish wagon and the nice clothes and the sister's pony, it's quite likely that Patty had other, bigger and better toys. We can make what I feel is a strong case for her sentimental attachment to a tiny doll. But coming up, there's also a more practical reason for why she held on to it. And this will become really, really important later. Dolly was small enough to hide. The Donna Reed party was hit with a whole avalanche of misfortunes. But the snowball that started that avalanche was a truly awful decision they made at Fort Bridger. The Donner and Reed family separated from the larger wagon train and opted instead to follow something called the Hastings Cutoff. This was a so-called shortcut, but it actually added a month to their trek, bringing them over the Wasatch Mountains and across the Great Salt Lake Desert. Now, if you're part of a group that has no experience with mountains or deserts or the Native American tribes that inhabit them, this is probably not the best course of action. The mountain trail they hit off for was not really a trail at all. Historian George Stewart describes it, quote, For five days they struggled as if in a nightmare to open about six miles of road, cutting timber and hacking through brush, digging down side holes, rolling out boulders and leveling for creek crossings. The way which they cleared was merely a passage strewn with boulders and ugly with stumps. Altogether, that mountain shortcut took them 23 days to travel 36 miles, and they still had 80 miles of desert to cross. We think of desert as a lot of sand and cactus, but the Great Salt Lake Desert is a rather special kind of hell. Virginia Reed, Patty's sister, described it as, quote, as though the hand of death lay on the country. Instead of sand, there's only wide salt flats. You have scorching days and freezing nights. Virginia wrote how her father would settle their five dogs around Patty and the other children at night just to help them keep warm. And got a quick science lesson here. That big temperature change every day made a lot of condensation on the ground, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but that condensation turned the salt flats into a gluey mess of salt-crusted mud. In some spots, it came halfway up the wagon wheels and the oxen struggled just to move. And while there was moisture enough to make things miserable, there wasn't any water. They'd been told they could cross the desert in two days. It took them six, and animals went crazy from thirst. Oxen, cattle, horses, they all died or ran away. Wagons had to be abandoned as they got stuck or as the oxen pulling them collapsed. It was during this time that the reeds lost all their oxen and half their cattle. In order to move forward, families doubled up in the remaining wagon. But that meant dumping possessions, and that included any and all toys. Unlike Patty's other toys, Dolly was small. This is all conjecture, but it is so easy to imagine a little girl, exhausted and thirsty, outwardly obedient, but secretly hiding one tiny, special doll, a last gift from her grandmother, in her dress pocket. 
and there Dolly would stay for the remaining increasingly awful months of the trek. By now, it's early October in Nevada. It was just a few weeks after leaving the desert when the Reed family had another, more personal disaster. On October 5th, Patty's father, James Reed, and another man had an argument. It escalated, and the man hit James with a whip handle. James pulled a knife and stabbed the other man, killing him. He claimed self-defense, and the eyewitness accounts are confused and contradictory. Whatever actually happened, the group first threatened James with hanging, and then settled on banishing him. Patty had already seen her grandmother die, and now she had to watch as her father rode away from the group, unarmed and with few supplies. The group began to fracture, and members started turning on one another as supplies dwindled. Think about Patty. Think about being eight years old and seeing all this. Your father is gone, your mother alone, and when you ask for help, people just shrug and turn away. We forget, you know, because she was an eight-year-old. And, and, and for a child to be in a situation like that, it must have been terrifying. And this didn't just go on for a few days or a few hours or a couple of weeks. This went on for months. The end of October saw one bright spot. Near present-day Reno, a rider sent ahead returned with several mules carrying much-needed food for the group. But that rider also assured the group that the mountains now looming in front of them, the Sierra Nevadas, would be open for at least another month. He was wrong. If you're familiar with the Donner Party story, we're getting to the part that most of you know. No sooner had the party set out across the Sierras than the snow started to fall. In early November, the snow was already five feet deep when they approached the final pass. And here we come to another bad decision. Rather than push forward, the Donner Party stopped and set up camp in what was later named the Donner Pass. Virginia later wrote, quote, We could get across if we kept right on, but some of our party were so tired and exhausted with the day's labor that they declared they could not take another step, so the few who knew the danger yielded to the many. And here's one of the most crushing parts of their story. You should know that they camped only three miles below the summit of the pass, less than a hundred miles from Sutter's Fort, their destination. But heavy snow started that night, and the party, along with Patty, would be trapped there until March. Initially, people built crude shacks. They didn't even have doors or windows, just a hole to crawl in and out of. The snow was soon so high that it became impossible to cut fresh wood. Whatever animals they had left were starving themselves and quickly killed for food. Now, they didn't just sit there while this was happening. Several groups set out several times to get down the mountains and find help. But bad weather and their own weakness always forced them to turn back. You might expect people in this situation to band together, but you'd be wrong. Many families refused to help one another or had open conflicts. And when nothing else was left, people began eating those hides off the dead oxen. Boiled, they made a sort of gluey soup. They also boiled bones until they were brittle enough to chew. By now, the only hides that were left, for that matter, served as roofs, leaving them to decide between shelter or total starvation. It's right around this time that diaries and later accounts start mentioning cannibalism, though those accounts, again, are confused and contradictory. Some people claim they drew straws, others that they just began eating their dead. Still others later confessed to committing murder in order to survive themselves. 
And the families were faced with another dilemma beyond eating their oxhide roofs. Those crude shacks they built when they first made camp, they also had to start burning the wood for fuel. And that brings us again to Dolly, still hidden away in Patty's pocket. Penn makes a point I'd never thought of. Patty probably kept Dolly hidden during this time because she'd be used for kindling. Yeah, and the, and the, the snow is so deep, it's 10, 20 foot, I think, above the height of the trees. So they can't get to the wood to burn it anymore. So they're desperate in every It's horrendous. They're desperate in every way you can imagine. And even a tiny bit of wood like that would be valuable as kindling because obviously a, a very dry, small piece of pine would be a great thing to burn. In clutching her doll, maybe Patty was also clutching at memories of family meals, clean clothes, warmth, normalcy. In less awful circumstances, she might have made Dolly a little jacket out of oxide, except they'd eaten them all. We need to jump back a second and get off the mountain for a bit. Remember when Patty's father was banished from the group? James Reed had traveled pretty quickly on horseback and actually made it to Sutter's Fort in California by the end of October, when Patty's group was still in the mountains. Other members of the larger group had ditched their wagons and made it down as well. The weather turned bad, and news started to spread of people trapped in the past. Several rescue attempts were made, but always turned back due to snow. It would be February before a rescue party finally made it to the camp, and they were appalled at what they found. Based on people's diaries from that time, George Stewart wrote, quote, All were unkempt and unbathed. Everyone spent much of the time in bed, wrapped in blankets and quilts, which had not been sunned in months. Even the cold weather failed to keep down the vermin. The sick looked haggardly at those who could still move around. The starved babies were too weak to cry. It's no wonder that when the rescuers appeared, someone asked, Are you from California or from heaven? On February 22nd, the rescue party started back down the pass, and they had the entire Reed family with them. It was soon painfully apparent, though, that Patty and her brother were just too weak to make the trip. And in a story filled with difficult decisions, this was the last, probably most wrenching one. Does Patty's mother support her two stronger children down the mountain and maybe keep them alive? Or does she remain with and care for her two sick children, probably dying herself? In the end, Patty's mother chose to leave without her and head down the mountain. My producer and I, we argued about this for ages. Was Patty's mother making a a deliberate decision to save some of her children, the ones that were most likely to survive? And if so, was that decision cynical or just practical? According to Virginia... Patty actually made the decision for her. Virginia wrote that Patty said, I want to see Papa, and I'll take good care of Tommy, and I don't want you to come back. Even allowing for Virginia's sentimental writing style, can we just take a minute and think about an eight-year-old girl in these conditions being brave enough to say something like that? I think Patty was a tough, strong little girl, and she... she, uh proved it anyway by surviving, didn't she? No matter what, we know that Patty had lost her grandmother, her father, and now her mother, who was leaving her behind in that desolate camp. The people who had promised to look after her were starving themselves. At this point, all Patty had was her sick brother and Dolly. 
It took that rescue party five days to get down. Patty's father was still recovering from his own ordeal, and he expected to see his entire family arrive at the fort. When he learned that Patty and Tommy were still on the mountain, he quickly organized a second rescue party to go up there. According to Virginia, he seemed to fly over the snow and was overjoyed to find his two children still alive at the camp. Needless to say, Patty was incredibly weak by this point, and she had to be physically carried out with the men taking turns carrying her. By the time they finally staggered down, it was amazing that anyone had survived at all. Of the 87 people trapped in the Donner Pass, only 46 survived. Incredibly, this included the entire Reed family and Patty's smuggled doll. In fact, it was only when Patty finally reached safety that she revealed that she'd kept Dolly all along. She only brings her out finally when she feels like she's on the re- she's in the rescue party and she's on the way out and she's nearly to safety. And she finally brings Dolly out from under her skirts and says, oh, look, well, I had all along. Um, so I think it's pragmatic. She's a sensible child. She's saving something that really means a lot to her, but at the same time, it's something that no one can take from her. At the beginning of this episode, Penn said that any doll is a survivor, not just Dolly. But dolls survive because dolls are important to the little girls that keep them. And perhaps no doll was ever more important to any little girl than Dolly was to Patty. By the end of Patty's terrible ordeal, it's possible that Dolly was not only a link to her grandmother, but to her entire life before. People think of the Donner Party and think it's a story about cannibalism. But when you know about Patty and Dolly, it's really a story about what it takes to survive. And by that, I don't mean food or shelter. That's the obvious stuff. I'm talking about what it takes for the spirit to survive. What keeps us going when it would be so much easier to just give up? What keeps us sane when the world around us is falling apart? Ultimately, the things that we hold on to, the things that matter most to us, are the things that connect us. Connect us to someone we love, to someone who loved us, to a happy time. And in a period when most people didn't have photos, Almost all of those things would have been handmade, most of them from cloth, knit, sewn, or woven. Today, that still holds true to some degree. Think about family quilts, an afghan, or a baby blanket that someone's grandmother made. These things are important not because of what they are, but of what they mean. And so we hang on to them, as Patty hung on to Dolly until her death in 1923. Patty's sister went on to write a rather famous account of their journey, one we quote from quite a bit here. But Patty's life was fairly uneventful after coming down the mountain. She remained in California, she married, had eight children, kept a boarding house. After her death, she left the doll and other items from her journey to the Sutter's Fort Museum. And she didn't want it to be lost after she died. She wants it to go to a museum where other people can see it and know a bit of the story. But she obviously, as an elderly lady, understands the importance of this doll. So I think, you know, she's she's a survivor in a million different ways because she survived the original cull of toys back at home in Illinois. And then she survives all of those toys and all those possessions that get just dumped in the desert because these people realize we've got to survive now. Um, she survives that as well. I mean, you think of all the material culture, all the goods that are in that, that, those wagons that get left behind and never seen again. So much got left behind in the Donner Party disaster. Homes and families left back east. A beloved grandmother buried by the side of the road. 
Other people who died along the trail or in those final horrible months. Entire wagons and the things that filled them. When Patty's family finally emerged from the Sierra Mountains, they had almost nothing beyond the clothes they wore. And one tiny wooden doll in clothing sewn by a child that continues to tell their story today. Thanks so much for listening to Fiber Nation. You can find more information about Patty's doll and the Donner Party on our show notes page. Just look for the link in the episode description. If you haven't already subscribed, find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you like what you hear, take time to leave a review. Fiber Nation is produced by me, Allison Korleski. Our consulting producer is Ron Doyle. Our audio engineer and editor is Evan Rutherford. And our executive producer of podcasts is Jared Mayer. <laughs>